I'm going to be bold and interrupt you and invite you to stand for our invocation and opening prayer. The God of good grace be with you all. Let us pray. God of wonder and glory, this world around us is awesome. You created it. You continue to hold it together even as we threaten to tear it apart. God of justice and righteousness, to you we look for the truth. You are the ultimate judge. Your wisdom cuts through the lies. God of grace and mercy, the love you have shown us in Jesus is more than we deserve. Your arms are open wide, like a waiting father for his prodigal children, ready to welcome, ready to restore. We come to you just now, thirsting for your living water. Guide us to the streams of your wonder and glory, your justice and righteousness, your grace and mercy, that we may drink and be satisfied, renewed for our continuing journey with you. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Please turn to your neighbor and share a sign of God's peace. Please be seated. A reading from John's fourth chapter. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and said to her, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and we, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw the water. 
Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Here ends the reading. Good morning, almost good afternoon. I love that story, and I love that we start this morning with story, with each other's stories, because stories is such an important part of human existence. Stories frame our lives. Stories identify who we are and where we fit. And I really would even dare say that story, um, that we are story. We are our stories. And we enjoy stories, we love entertaining stories, but one thing that we also know is stories have the ability to teach. They have, as they call it, epistemic significance. And uh, the way a story teaches is it causes us to think, to listen to what's being told, and to make evaluative judgments, and to come con to conclusions, and to see how those come, how they bear on our lives. And uh, there's a certain literary convention that's been identified that I would like to share with you this morning. And it's the idea of a type scene. These are first identified in the stories of Homer where a certain scene would be set. And as soon as the storyteller or the play began, the audience would immediately know what's going to happen. And I'll give you an example of a type scene in our culture. So if I was to stand here and say, once upon a time, there was a beautiful girl who lived in the woods in the shadow of a castle. We immediately have framed in our understanding that this girl is probably a princess or she will be a princess. There's gonna be some sort of danger some sort of magic, there's gonna be somebody who comes along, most likely a male who's gonna sweep her off her feet with love's first kiss and they will be married and live happily ever after. Okay, so that's, that's a convention we have. It's a literary convention, we all know it, our children know it, and we love the story. But what's interesting is when an author wants to teach a lesson using a type scene like that, they'll throw a twist in. So if we look at Princess Aurora, who Scott and I spoke about this morning, Princess Aurora, otherwise known as Sleeping Beauty, she's very passive in this whole process. I think she speaks maybe 20 words in that whole film, on, in the Disney film. And then she falls asleep, and she just waits for things to happen. And so what happens then is her charming prince, Philip, comes along, and he has this major battle with Maleficent. 
And so there's this huge redemptive violence that happens. And then he comes in and he kisses her and love's first kiss awakens her and they marry and live happily ever after. It's a good story. Now, take Frozen. Frozen begins with two princesses in a castle. And so we immediately think, okay, this is where we're going to go. There's going to be a hero. There's going to be some sort of drama. There's going to be a man that's going to come and sweep one or both of them off their feet, or hopefully two men. Um, but what happens? It doesn't happen that way at all. The man, the handsome man who comes along, is actually the villain. The danger comes from within one of the girls who has the inability to control the power that she has because her parents have done a pretty poor job of parenting. <laughs> Very poor job. And so the salvation in this story doesn't come through some sort of redemptive violence. It doesn't come through a battle. The, the salvation in this story comes through a selfless act of self-sacrifice where Anna places herself in danger to save her sister Elsa. And the salvation actually comes through love and not through violence. And so we see that the author of this story is wanting us to come to some different conclusions that what, than what we would normally come to in hearing one of these type scene princess happily ever after stories. And that is one, women don't really need men to rescue us. <laughs> Two, we need to have self-control and learn self-control. Three, Salvation doesn't always come through violence, and that salvation can come through love. And um, that's my, one of my favorite points of that, about that movie. Now, in thinking in this term, and we think in terms of stories being uh, teaching tools, we see that the Bible is full of story. It's the most common uh, form of literature in the Bible. And it's been identified by uh, Robert Alter. He's an Old Testament Hebrew and literary analysis a professor up in Berkeley. And he's identified several type scenes in the Old Testament. And one of the type scenes that he's identified is a man goes to a well and he meets his bride. And so we see that when Isaac sends his servant to a faraway land to meet a woman at a well, and her name's Rebecca, and the story goes that she uh, is betrothed and they get married maybe not live happily ever after, but something along that line. We also have the story of uh, Jacob meeting Rachel at a well, and we also have the story of Moses meeting Zipporah. So there's this type scene, and what happens in this type scene is a man travels to a far place, he goes to a foreign place, meets a woman at a well, which is a symbol of fertility and, and female sexuality in the Hebrew culture. Um, they share water, somebody draws water, and then they share that, and then the woman rushes off to her family. There's an invitation to a meal, and then there's a betrothal, and the two get married. It's a really interesting type scene, especially inside of today's gospel. Okay, so when the hearer of this story, in the context of the time that this was written, or the reader of this story, they're gonna be familiar with that type scene, because this this gospel was written to the Jewish community, the Johannine Jewish community. And they would have heard the first line of this, there was a woman at a well and Jesus came down and sat with her. It would have been scandalous. So we talk about the scandal of the incarnation. I think this is probably one of the most scandalous stories in the, in the New Testament scriptures, in the gospels, because Jesus crosses all kinds of conventions, all kinds of barriers. He's alone, he's a male, He's available. 
he's far from home. Now we know what Samson did when he was far from home. Samson got in a lot of trouble when he was far from home. Here's Jesus, who's already been identified as the Son of Man, which is a messianic sort of title. He's already shared that he's the bridegroom, and now here he is alone, away from his family, away from his disciples, alone with this woman who, through no fault of her own, has been married five times, likely a widow, likely the victim of a culture where women cannot own property, and so you marry your brother-in-law, and maybe you marry the next brother-in-law, and then maybe you marry a cousin or an uncle or somebody so that finally you have children so that your husband can have progeny and you can keep your land. Um, that's probably the situation she was in, through no fault of her own. So here Jesus is with this woman who would be identified as being probably not the greatest spouse because something's wrong with her, that she's not bearing children. And I'm kind of reading under the text, but that's, that's my best guess at what's happening. And here she is. She knows the story, too. How is it that you, being a male Jew, talks to me, a female Samaritan? She's very aware of the convention that's being broken here because he's crossing an ethnic barrier because Jews don't share things in common. Now, another translation for that share things in common also means Jews are not intimate with Samaritans. And I'll let you go with where that mean, what that means. Jews are not intimate with Samaritans. He's crossing a gender barrier where a male is speaking to a female. And he's crossing an ethnic barrier between the Samaritans and the Jews. So these barriers, these conventions, he's breaking, and he's intentionally breaking these in this, in this encounter with this woman. And so the listener understands that this is a scandalous thing. And where is this story going to go? Is Jesus going to marry this woman? Is he finding his bride? And what, what ensues in the conversation is very interesting. Lots of talk about water and wells. And, and it's very fertile conversation. And uh, what Jesus does is he takes the understanding of water as being a symbol of fertility to water as being a symbol of the spirit which we see in Ezekiel, where the water flows out from the temple. And so Jesus actually twists her understanding of the way the story plays, and really twists the, the listener or the reader's understanding of the way the story plays, because he says, no, I'm not that bridegroom. I'm not coming to an individual. And I'm not even coming to an individual people, but I'm coming to all, that all can come and drink of this living water that I have to offer. And what's interesting is that we didn't finish reading the story. We kind of cut it about halfway through. Because she does run off to her family, and she does tell the Samaritans about this person that she met. But there's no meal. There's no offer of a meal. There is no betrothal. And so the author is using this convention to show that God meets us in unconventional ways, that God's not interested in our conventions. He wants to break our conventions. He wants to meet us in ways that are surprising. He says that his food is to do the will of his father. That's the meal that he partakes of. And then he offers himself to all of us. And so just to conclude, um, I want to share that God's unconventional in the way he approaches us and that we have certain needs and we think that we know how they may need to be fulfilled, but he's gonna shock us. He's gonna do things different than the, differently than we expect.
that, that essentially God has opened up the storybook of our lives and he's written himself into those pages and that he invites us into his story. And so I hope that we all accept that invitation and allow ourselves to be written into the story of God. Amen.